The book of 2 Peter chapter 1. This morning we're going to examine the first 11 verses of 2 Peter. 2 Peter is a book that is especially timely for people who are Christians in our day and time. For unlike the first epistle of Peter, which was written in a time when it was not fashionable to be a Christian, and when many Christians suffered and were persecuted for their faith, 2 Peter was written at a later time and at a time much like ours in that being a Christian was a very normal and a very popular thing to be. Being a Christian no longer meant persecution from without. It no longer meant a risking of life or a uh, losing of possessions or position. Indeed, in the day that Peter wrote his second epistle, the real dangers to the church came from the same source that they come from today. They came from within the church. For it was during his day that heresy had begun to spring up. During his day, the Word of God had begun to be devalued and false teachers substituted tradition and man-made things for the faith of their fathers and for the Word of God. In Peter's second epistle, the key thoughts are faith, diligence, and knowledge. He calls us as soldiers, soldiers who must be well equipped, who need knowledge of the enemy, who need knowledge of the resources at their commands, and who need the skills to meet the challenge. And this knowledge looks to the same goal as the hope of every Christian does, to the final time when the Lord Jesus shall take control of all things. Now Peter lived to be a fairly old man before he was martyred in Rome. Ancient Christian tradition would teach us that Peter, when it came time for him to be executed, was sentenced to die by crucifixion. And as he was being led forth to be crucified, he begged for a favor from his executioners. He begged that he might be crucified upside down. For he said he was not worthy to die death in the same manner as his Lord. And in his older years, this is Peter's final message to the church. And it is quite significant to see what Peter thought must be said when he came to his last opportunity to speak and to write to the Lord's people. We are told to be ready. We are told to cling at all cost to God's way as God has revealed Himself in His Word and to let nothing take its place. And so Peter presents us in chapter 1 an urgent challenge. In verses 1 through 4, we are given the basis of the challenge which Peter issued. We read, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, 
through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us great and precious or precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Here is the basis of the challenge. Now Peter, like the Apostle Paul and indeed like all Scripture, recognized that his position in Christ was a position that he did not deserve. You know, the apostles were a select group of men. Christ chose them from all his followers who were available to him. He appointed them to a unique and special position. As Baptists, we do not believe in apostolic succession. We believe the apostles were a small group of men called and appointed by Jesus Christ. No one alive today nor at any time since that day has possessed their position or their prestige or their power. And yet we hear Paul, an apostle. We hear Peter, an apostle, constantly refer to themselves as the slaves of Christ. Where is it then that we get off thinking that we are something unique and beyond anybody else, and where does any Christian get the idea that God has gifted them above any other Christian? You didn't get it from God's Word. Paul identifies himself as a bondservant. The Greek word is the word doulos. Doulos means one who was born a slave. One who was born a slave. Now Peter recognizes the fact and acknowledges the fact that from the day of his spiritual birth he was the slave of Jesus. Now beloved, if you could understand and if I could understand that we are the slaves of Christ, it would deliver us from this ungodly and satanic attitude that God must have designed everything that has been designed in order to make us happy. The chief end of man is the glory of God and God has never done anything with the specific and primary purpose of pleasing us. Never. The specific and primary purpose of everything that God has ever done is to glorify Jesus. Peter calls himself a born slave. He calls himself an apostle. Now to us, apostle is a term of high honor, and it ought to be. But what apostle means literally is messenger boy. Messenger boy. You know, Paul and Peter and others of whom we read in the book of Acts encountered great uh, opposition and hostility and uh, from people when they delivered God's Word. That doesn't make any sense. The apostle, like the Christian today, is simply a messenger boy. He has a choice. He can either be faithful to the message he has been given or he can be unfaithful. That's the only choice he has. And it makes as much sense for us as Christians to be angered by someone who delivers the Word of God as it makes for you to punch out a telegraph boy who delivers a telegram because you don't like the message. 
Peter identifies himself as one who is born a slave and one who is the messenger boy of the Lord Jesus. And he says he is writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Faith received is the gift of God. And our faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. Faith is nothing to be proud of. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that faith is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Thus, any faith, if it is placed in Christ, is enough faith. In verse 2, he wishes for Christians grace and peace to be multiplied but notice how it is to be multiplied. It is to be multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Somehow, there's a large segment of contemporary Christianity that has the idea that ignorance is spiritual merit. I have actually heard with my own ears, I'm glad I don't know much about the Bible. I just have to pray and let God tell me what to do. And all of the demons in hell rise with a standing ovation. For Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. To Christians, grace and peace come through full knowledge. The word in verse 2 and elsewhere in this passage is a word beyond the simple word know. It means to know completely. There can be a false knowledge as Peter uh, tells us about it, as Paul talks about in the book of Colossians and in the book of Ephesians. There can be a false knowledge, but there can never be a false total knowledge. It is a full knowledge that leaves nothing left out. And is this so inconsistent with what Jesus said when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And what Paul said when he said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowledge is the basis for Christian maturity. For ignorance is, is not a spiritual merit. We are told as Christians that we are to grow in the knowledge of Christ, and we do that through His Word. Knowledge is the basis for maturity. It is the door to godly living. In Romans 10, Paul talks about what must happen if people are going to be saved and if they are going to grow as Christians. And he says in Romans 10, 14, how can they believe on him of whom they have not heard? How can they believe if they do not hear, if they do not receive knowledge? How can they respond in faith to Christ? In verse 3, he says, Now how is this to be done? Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life, and godliness. God has decreed that the position of every Christian and the possession of every Christian is everything it takes to live the Christian life. You know, sometimes 
we live as though we believed God has left us without enough provision for Christian living. But that's not true. It says His divine power has granted. That means it has guaranteed. The divine and sovereign power of Almighty God has guaranteed to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. His power gives us what we need by way of His own glory and excellence. What has He given us? He has given us faith, the foundation. He has given us a Christian walk, which is the building that we are building day by day. In one of his letters, Paul, late in his life, more than 30 years after his conversion, Paul is writing to a friend, and he says that the desire of his heart is, and I quote, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection that I may know Him. There's something seriously amiss when there is not within us a desire to know, a desire to know. For the absence of that desire indicates that we really believe we possess all the knowledge that we need. And the Scriptures would tell us that that is not true, that it is never the case. Now, this faith, that is his gift, is the seed from which grows the Christian life. You see, it is the seed. He plants it within us. Now, only God can make a seed. You know, a seed is a very simple thing. All you have to do is split a pea open, and there isn't anything extraordinary about it. And yet, if you plant one, soon it will begin to sink a root and it will begin to shoot a sprout up into the air. And man, with all of his technology and with the ability to program a spacecraft to fly hundreds of millions of miles away within a very small tolerance and to photograph the farthest planets in our solar system, man, with everything that he can do, cannot make a seed. Only God can make a seed. Now, we can nurture the seed, but only God can make it. Now, he has told us that grace and peace and the gifts that God gives are multiplied to us through the knowledge of God, which is granted to us by the power of God. And in verse 4, he says, By these he has granted, guaranteed again to us, his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. By these, by what has he given us promises that guarantee his likeness in us? By his own power, by his own glory, by his own virtue. Now a promise, when you say God made a promise, that presupposes several things. It presupposes that if God promised it, God is able to do it. When you make somebody a promise, your promise is a farce unless you can deliver what you promise. A promise means 
that it is something that you will do. You commit yourself to that. A promise is something that you may do as you please, for it is within your own power to do it, and you have promised to do it, and thus you do it at your own choice. And a promise is something, a promise from God is something that only God can do. Now Peter says, by these, by his own power, by his own glory, by his own virtue, by these he has given us great and precious or magnificent promises. The only reason a Christian is ever defeated is by choice. The only reason a Christian is ever defeated is by choice. Now, it would be much more comfortable not to know that, not to believe it, and not to have to accept it, but that happens to be the truth. God has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's told us that. He has granted us everything that we need. Now, either God is a liar or we do not experience what we need because we choose not to experience it. He has granted us great and precious promises. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, said this, The pathway of life is strewn so thickly with the promises of God that it is impossible to take even one step without trotting on at least one of them. By these he has granted to us great and precious promises in order that by them we might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust or by simple human desire. We become like Christ in two ways by the fires of trial, and that is what the book of 1 Peter is all about, and by experiencing the promises of God. That is what the book of 2 Peter is all about. Here is the basis of the challenge. Peter does not jump up and demand that his readers do impossible things before he tells them that the power of God has guaranteed them everything that they need to do the will of God. That is the basis of the challenge. In verses 5 through 7, here is building for the challenge. Peter writes, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, Christian love. You see, if he had said that first, his reader's initial reaction would have been to say, that's impossible. Nobody can do that. And that's a true statement. No human being can do it. But by the power of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, any Christian who doesn't do it is living in sin. Here is building for the challenge. Because the power of God has guaranteed these things. Now, he says in verse 5, for this very reason, because God has guaranteed it, now you must be excellent morally. 
You must gain knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and Christian love. This is Peter's golden rope of seven virtues twisted and bound together. All of them go together. One demands the other. One builds on the other. One completes the others. And by the grace of God and by His grace only, they are the experience of Christians. This is like a golden chain every strand of which depends on faith, which Peter has told us is the gift of God. Faith without knowledge is dead. We are told by the Lord's brother James in the, the epistle of James. Faith without knowledge in de is dead. You want to know, now often people who are faithful to Christ are called fanatics. The world calls us fanatics. Very often the world, it is obvious by the way the news media handle religious things. It is obvious by the things that we read and see that the world considers anybody who really loves Jesus a fanatic. Now there is such a thing as a fanatic, as someone who is misguided and unbalanced spiritually but it is not somebody who has trusted everything they have in the hands of Jesus. The real fanatic is the one who has faith, and I use the term loosely, without the corresponding knowledge of God which defines true faith. It is what the Apostle Paul called a zeal not according to knowledge, and he condemns it. All these things grow from faith and ignorance of the promises of God that Peter mentions in verse 5, or in verse 4. Ignorance of His promises make us useless to God. We are told in verse 7 to move from kindness to love. And notice that love is different than brotherly kindness. Now in our King James and other translations, the term brotherly kindness here is the same term brotherly love. It is the word Philadelphia, the affection of close friendship. We have watered down agape, the God kind of love, to where we think in terms of love, in terms of kindly affection. We would think that a parent is not fit to be a parent who never exercises any discipline. And yet we think that genuine love can exist without discipline. Now I would remind you that the perfect model of agape love is Jesus Christ. And lest you think he never exercised discipline on the basis of the truth, you should follow him for a few days through the Gospels and see what he did. He loved, but he never compromised the truth in the name of so-called love. Here Peter distinguishes between brotherly kindness and agape love. In verse 9, here is blindness to the challenge. Verses 8 and 9, for he says... For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful 
in the knowledge, the full knowledge, the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Here, Peter puts a willful ignorance of the Word of God on the same basis as willful sin. The term blindness means to shut the eyes. That is the literal meaning of the Greek term. It means to shut the eyes. It is a willful act. It is something that is done by choice. Here is blindness to the to the challenge. He who lacks these qualities is willfully blind. And Scripture says there are none so blind as those who will not see. Seeing only what one wants to see, not even knowing there is a battle around, crying, peace, peace, when there is no peace, forgetting his purification from his former sins. That's the only way that many Christians worldwide can live as they do is by willful blindness. And then in verses 10 and 11, Peter calls for boldness in the challenge. Therefore, now in the epistles when the word therefore occurs, you can circle it and look up to the first thought. And obviously, the first thought begins with verse 1 where Peter begins the letter. Therefore, because of the challenge and the power of God guarantees the power to meet the challenge, because of faith, because it is God's gift, therefore be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. You know, we've got the idea that everybody who knows how to say the word Jesus is a Christian. Peter says, and it's very graphic in the King James, where he says, make certain your election and your calling. He isn't say, saying, make sure you're saved today uh, because you might have been saved yesterday and lost today. He didn't say that. What he said literally, be all the more diligent to make certain that God has chosen you and called you. Paul told us to examine ourselves and to see if we be in the faith. And he wrote that to the church. Examine yourselves and see if you be in the faith. He calls for diligence, for stability, for endurance. He says in verses 10 and 11, For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Now notice what he says. This is very much like Psalm 119, 165. Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have they who love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. The New American Standard, Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing shall cause them to stumble. Here, Peter says, as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Now, it doesn't take too much uh, intelligence to figure out 
that if Peter says, as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble, and we stumble, it is because we are not practicing these things. As long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. He says, be sure you possess the Lord Christ. And by these things, the entrance into the eternal kingdom will be made abundantly plain to you. The word entrance means literally the road into. The road into. And it is like a highway with road signs. If it were not for the road signs, you could not know whether you were on the right road or not. And Peter says the way you can find the right road to the eternal kingdom is by the road signs. By the road signs. And it's the only way. Here is boldness in the challenge. He declares the entrance will be made known to us and there will be reward and full blessing. This challenge is urgent for in our day, the gospel is watered down. God's word is replaced by man-made things. And Peter challenges us to be consistent, to be true to God at all cost. This week, especially this week, you need to pray every day for the messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention in Houston, Texas. For this may very well be the year when Southern Baptists decide whether they as a whole still believe the Bible to be the infallible and inerrant Word of God. And I know it may strike you as strange, but there are many within our family of Southern Baptists who are not even sure it matters whether or not you believe if the Bible is infallible and inerrant. And they criticize and make fun of those who do. And beloved, an army of those who love Jesus and love His Word is going to Houston to see that our denomination does not go the way of others who have denied the truth of God's Word. You need to pray to that end. We are challenged to be ready, to be consistent, to be true to Him as at all cost. Over a hundred years ago, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the preeminent Baptist preacher of modern times, was called upon in his native England to stand for the truth of God's Word. Repeatedly, many came to Spurgeon and many criticized him as they are today, those who believe God's Word. And they said to Spurgeon, don't you know that you are causing division among our denomination?" And Spurgeon said, there is no unity among God's people that is not based on God's Word. Here we stand. God help us. We can do no other. Will you pray this week that Southern Baptists, who are covered more by the media than any other religious group in the world, will stand before that world and proclaim the truth of God's Word. May we pray. Heavenly Father, deliver us, though we would not say it, from a lifestyle and a presumptive type of living which has the same effect as denying the Word of God, for we deny its authority over our lives. Deliver us from that. 
And in this day, as hostility to the gospel increases, as the world grows more secular, as government begins to take over everything and everybody, may we be a people who are willing to venture all for Jesus. May it be so. I pray it. I thank you that it shall be in the lives of many. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.